Hallelujah, what a Savior, beloved. Amen? We'll have thousands and thousands and thousands of years to repeat that. Looking forward to that day. Mark chapter 10. We're in verse 46. We'll be finishing off Mark chapter 10. If you are using one of these blue Bibles, you can turn to page 846. That will bring you to Mark chapter 10. So, you guys ready? All right, very good. Three, we're ready. Three, so for the rest of you, just (laughs) hang out for a while (laughs) until it's over and go to lunch and, you know, all that good stuff. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I am, uh, it's a blessing to be with you every Sunday. I'm still not over last week, actually. I'm still... Uh, riding high on just uh, what happened last week. If you weren't here, I'm sorry that you, you weren't able to be here with us. But like I said, I would encourage you to listen to the testimonies that are on the website. Uh, it'll, it'll, you'll rejoice. It'll gladden your heart. Listen, people, if you ask people about Jesus' identity, they're going to give different responses. Okay? Some people will say he was a carpenter. Some will say the son of Mary. Some a good man. Some will say a moral teacher. An example to follow. Some might even say that Jesus was a lunatic or a fairy tale. The whole thing's a joke. It's not real. Or maybe that Jesus was a rebel. I've heard all of those things, actually. On our application for membership, we have this question. Who is Jesus Christ? And there have been various ways that the people of God have answered that question. Some say, my Lord, my Savior, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity. And probably one of the most popular answers is the Son of God. All of those are accurate, every single one. But one answer I don't ever recall seeing on one of the membership applications in regard to who is Jesus Christ is he is the son of David. I've never seen anybody put that down. The concept of Jesus being the son of David is very Jewish in nature. So we'll start with that. And it's rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. Most Christians, beloved, are not Jewish. Most. And many Christians do not really have an understanding of the Old Testament. In fact, many of them stay away from it, don't read it, they find it to be confusing. So, it is not shocking that people would not identify Jesus Christ as the Son of David. But this morning, my goal is to raise your interest and awareness of Jesus as being the Son of David and what that means specifically. So, we're going to look at the text a little bit differently than we normally do. We normally break it down and look at all the details But this time, we're just going to narrow in on one particular topic, and that is the Son of David. So let's look at the text and follow me as we read together. Chapter 10 of Mark, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, that is Jesus, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was of Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, 
Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So entering Jericho, Jesus was approximately now 20 miles by land from his final destination, Jerusalem. And if you remember, Jesus has now told his disciples three times that he's going to Jerusalem to die. The text we just read in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52 really is an introduction, serves that purpose, to help us understand what we will look at next week in Mark's Gospel and to understand the behavior of the people as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, also referred to as the triumphal entry. Maybe you've heard that that term, maybe you haven't. But look just down in the text to Mark chapter 11, to the next chapter, and we'll look at this next week together. Look at verse 8, and then I'm going to read from the other three Gospels because all four Gospels record the triumphal entry of Jesus. That is, His approach with the crowds and the disciples as He comes to Jerusalem. Mark 11, verse 8, And many spread their cloaks on the road. This is their response to Jesus, the carpenter, the Nazarene. This is how they're responding to this man. They spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. There it is again. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Luke 19.38 saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. John chapter 12 verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So these are all just accounts of the same event, Jesus approaching with his disciples the city of Jerusalem. And here in this text in Mark, we have a blind beggar identifying Jesus as the son of David twice. And by the way, this is the first time this title for Jesus has been used in Mark. He then receives his sight at the hands of the son of David. This should not be read as just another healing story that Jesus performed. This is not the first blind man that Jesus has healed. This is not the first miraculous healing that Jesus has done. But this one has significance because it is attached to the son of David, and hopefully that will become clear by the time we get done. So this morning we're we're basically going to ask three questions, and I'm going to answer them. 
regarding Jesus' identity as the Son of David so that our comprehension and admiration of Jesus might increase. That's where we're going this morning. If you have a bulletin, on the inside of your bulletin, the left side, is an outline so that you can follow along. The first question we want to answer is who was David? Who was David? I think it's a mistake just to assume that people know these things. And so even if you know this, and you could get up here right now and and wax eloquently, speak really nice, about David. There are probably several people around you who may not even know who he is. So I, I think it's good for us to talk about this. The David that the blind beggar was referring to was a man that lived and died approximately 1,000 years prior to the death of Jesus. 1,000 years. All right, what in the world could an ancient man such as this have to do with Jesus? And why in the world would a blind beggar and the crowds in Jerusalem, as we just read from the four Gospels, be making reference to this David, even calling Jesus... David's son. How is it possible that Jesus is David's son? This guy lived and died a thousand years ago. Let me ask you something. Do you remember any significant person from the 11th century? Any historian buffs in here? None? That's a thousand years ago. Who remembers someone from 1,000 years ago? Listen. Listen. Our country is just over 230 years old and most citizens of this country can only name a few of the 56 names that signed the Declaration of Independence. A pretty significant document. Now, everyone knows Samuel Adams, right? Because there's a beer that has his name on it. So, and they named him after that from Boston, Massachusetts. So, yeah, I know Samuel Adams was one of the signers. We can't even remember 230 years ago, let alone 1,000 years ago. So I only bring that up to let you see how significant this name must be. But many Christians do have some familiarity with the ancient man David, but it is often limited to the details of the story of David and Goliath. Now, if you're not familiar with it, you can find it. And don't turn there. You don't have to, but you can write it down. 1 Samuel 17. Fantastic story. Typically told in children's ministries and, and displayed in, in color. And it's just, I'm going to summarize the story for you quickly in case you don't know it. Because it is significant. David, the youngest and no doubt smallest boy of eight sons, Jesse, the father, still a youth, decides he's going to stand up for Israel, and more importantly, he's going to stand up for the God of Israel. And how does he do this? He accepts the challenge of a man-on-man battle, basically, that was issued by Goliath. Goliath basically saying, Give me a man from the nation of Israel and let him come out and fight me. And if he wins, we will surrender to you. But if he loses... You, Israel, will surrender to us. Goliath was a giant, beloved. He was huge. He was massive. He was a mighty warrior and soldier of the Philistines who were Israel's arch enemies. And Israel was afraid. Israel was afraid. To shorten the story and get through all the details very quickly, tiny, little, small, young youth David 
ends up prevailing over the large Goliath with a simple sling and stone. Like something like a... Wow, it just left me. Slingshot. Something like that, but not exactly. He launches a rock and it sinks into the forehead of this giant, causing him to fall to the ground dead. Now, the rest of the story, it's great, but usually people don't tell children this. He then walked over to, Dave, or to the Goliath, pulled out his massive sword and decapitated him. That's exactly what David said he would do. That's exactly what he said he would do. It's a great story, beloved. But like so many things in the Bible, people often do not read the stories in their context. So they're familiar with David and Goliath. And that's it. And the context of David and Goliath is at minimum 1st and 2nd Samuel. At minimum. You'd have to read 1st and 2nd Samuel to begin to understand David, who he is, how significant it was that that battle took place and what David did. And in fact, and I've heard this many times, pastors will go to the story of David and Goliath, read through it quickly, and then immediately begin making application to modern day Christians and say something like this. Beloved, you too, though you are small, can conquer your giants. That's right. Debt, sickness, job issues, relationships. You can conquer your giants just like David did. Well, I'm okay with people making application of the text, but if that was it, if that's all you got from the story of David and Goliath, you have missed what God really wanted to reveal to you. And you've missed the greater context of that story. There is significance in First and Second Samuel of David in the history of Israel and in God's redemptive plan for the world through the person of David. So, a more important detail we should know about David is actually recorded just before the event of First Samuel 17 where David and Goliath, the story takes place. Leading up to this very special detail in David's life, let me give you just very little background. Saul had been chosen. It's funny. I, didn't, I don't tell Terry what to say, but he mentioned Saul. That was fascinating to me. Saul had been chosen by the nation of Israel to be the very first human king of that nation. Which, according to the Bible, happened because they had rejected God as their king. You can look it up. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. That's not my words. That's the words of God himself. Telling Samuel, Samuel, they have rejected me as king. That's why they want Saul. But as a result of Saul's failure leading as their king, because God gave them what they wanted, Saul failed to obey God's specific instructions and ultimately God rejected him as Israel's king. God then chose for himself a man to replace Saul who as God's representative would speak and act for God as he ruled over the nation of Israel. 1 Samuel 16 records God's choice of who do you think? David. Of David. Very significant. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. And you should probably turn there in your Bibles because we're going to be in Samuel and 2 Samuel a little bit as we move through the, the story here and try to answer the question, who was David? 
1 Samuel 16, 1, so it's page 238 in those blue church Bibles. You, you should all know where Samuel is because you've been with us and we've gone through the order of books in the Old Testament, so you have them memorized, right? Good. But just in case you don't, <laughs> page 238. Or if you have a Bible, you can always look at the front and there's a little outline there in description and you can find the page the book is on. All right. 1 Samuel 16.1, we're just going to read the first verse, then jump to verse 6. The Lord said to Samuel, how long, Samuel was a prophet, how long will you grieve over Saul? He's upset because of what Saul has done. He says, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. When they came, that is Jesse and his sons, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is one of Jesse's sons. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. At the end of 1 Samuel, at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul's death is recorded. The king of Israel had died. 2 Samuel then details the transition of power and the establishment of David, the one God had chosen, as king over all Israel. It is also in 2 Samuel where a very significant event takes place between God and David. God not only chose David to be the king of his people, but he also made several unconditional promises to David. And when I say unconditional, what I mean is that the fulfillment of those promises did not depend on David or any future generations, but only on the faithfulness of God to bring about what He had promised. You understand what unconditional promise? It means only God was responsible to bring about that promise. These promises that we're going to look at in a second are referred to as Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. There are several covenants that you should become familiar with and hopefully if you stick with us and, and work through the, these Bible books together, you will become familiar with them. But the Davidic covenant is huge, beloved. Covenant simply means this. It's like a pledge or a promise or even a contract or legal agreement. 
In this case, being an unconditional covenant, it is a promise that God made that has the weight of a contract. It is unbreakable because God has made it. He does not break His Word. It is a pledge in the sense that God is saying, I am going to bring these things about. The things we're going to look at in a moment. Promises made to David. All of this is necessary for us to understand what is meant by Son of David and how critical it is and how how significant it is that Jesus was defined as such. So the second question then is, what is the Davidic covenant? Who is David? Second question, what is the Davidic covenant? So what I want to do is I want to start by reading the passage together with you where these promises that we refer to as the Davidic covenant are recorded. And then we're going to discuss some of that content further. And actually, beloved, we're only going to discuss the last verse, or actually verse 16. There is more here that I would love to talk to you about, but we do not have the time to do it today. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, reading verses 1 through 17. Page 259 of those blue Bibles. You know what I I realize is that people, when they try to read through the entire Bible, they start in Genesis and they always get excited. And Genesis is a cool book. A lot of good stories. And then they get to Exodus, another cool book. A lot of cool stories. And then they get to Leviticus. And if they make it through Leviticus, they probably won't make it through Numbers. And they stop. But First and Second Samuel are only a few books away. And they miss so much. They miss so much. So let's look at this. Second Samuel chapter 7. 1 through 17. I'm not going to explain all the details today, okay? So let's just read through this. Now, when the king lived in his house, this is King David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Basically, David wanted to build an incredible temple to house the Ark of God, which housed the Ten Commandments. Verse 4, But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel... Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning he dies, 
I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. By the way, this is a, this is a reference to his son Solomon. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, verse 16, here it is, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now I know that was a lot, but we're only going to briefly look at verse 16. And before I go any further, I just wanted to say this note. If you are, are waiting for me to explain every detail of the Bible on Sunday morning, that's not going to happen. Listen, I have a hard enough time. I'm sorry, I have a hard enough time just finishing on time with what I've got. You all know that. The nursery workers definitely know that. I have a hard time. I will never make it through the entire Bible in every detail. So often what I do is I bring something up hoping that you will become interested in it and you will take your own personal time to dive into it and study it further Monday through Saturday. So I just wanted to, to let you know that. I can and have recommended helpful resources, but the bottom line is, beloved, if you don't take the initiative to grow by getting into God's Word and your only study time is Sunday morning, then you'll suffer. You'll suffer to some degree. So I'm glad that you're here and I'm glad your Bibles are open. I'm glad you're listening. But you're going to need to do more than that to really get into the treasure chest that this book is and the 66 books reveal to us. So let me encourage you in that towards your growth. By the way, just on that note, I have recommended this book before. It is called The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva J. McLean. The Greatness of the Kingdom. Uh, I, 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 don't, I can't say enough about this book and, and how much it has helped me piece together these stories and the 66 books to find a unifying theme and one of those unifying themes being the kingdom of God. There is much confusion about the kingdom and this book seeks to clear that up. So I would just highly recommend it to you. It, is, it can be a little daunting as you first approach the book and you go, wow, this seems overwhelming. I would say stick with it. Read it slowly. Write down questions, and then we can talk about those things. So that's one thing I would recommend to you as a resource. So, in regard to the Davidic covenant, as I said, there is much that we could say right now, but we're just going to focus on 2 Samuel 7.16. And I just wanted to read the context for you so you can see how everything came about. That verse is, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There are three promises that God made to King David in what we call the Davidic covenant. The first one is your house. Your house shall be made sure forever. Okay, his house is not a physical building, but David's descendants. That's what they're referring to. He's not talking about a physical building, but David's descendants. That's language that they would use in a sense like dynasty. Your people. Your descendants, your family tree, would never cease to exist. Now that's interesting. 
one of David's descendants, Jehoram, had done great evil as the king of Judah. This is later on. The kingdom had split. We had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And Jehoram was ruling over the southern kingdom. Listen to how God responds to that evil king who was a descendant of David. Second Chronicles chapter 21, verse 6 and 7. The text says, And he did, Jehoram, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David and since he had promised to give him a lamp, give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Forever. In other words, the evil that that king had done, it was worthy of God wiping them out, destroying the line of David. But David had a covenant with God, an unconditional covenant that he promised his house would exist forever, his descendants. Two, and second promise is that God said, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your kingdom shall be made sure forever. The idea is this, that David's kingdom would never pass away permanently, even though it might not function at all times. That's important. That's an important note. And I actually got that quote from a man named Reynolds Showers. Reynolds Showers, who talks about the covenant of David and Abraham and the Mosaic covenant and other things and important things we need to understand when we're approaching the Bible. He wrote a book called There Really Is a Difference, Reynolds E. Showers, and he compares different theologies and the way that people approach the Bible. I, just by show of hands, how many of you have ever heard the word dispensational theology? Not bad. How about covenantal theology? How many of you know there's a big difference? There's a big difference. So he explains the differences and it affects how people come to the Word of God and interpret and understand it. And most people are just completely unaware of that. So I want to encourage you in those things. So here we are. Your kingdom shall be made sure forever. So in other words, history has shown that David's kingdom ceased to function. But based on God's promise to David, the nation of Israel rightly continued to anticipate the restoration of David's kingdom at some point in human history. John MacArthur, commenting on the idea of forever in this text, writes these words, It does not mean that there cannot be interruptions, but rather that the outcome is guaranteed. So to put it another way, David's kingdom is a certain future reality based on the Davidic covenant, the promises that God made to this king. Third, your throne shall be established forever. That was the third promise. This is best understood as the ruling authority as king that David exercised. And the promise here is, is that ruling authority will never pass away permanently. Again, there would be interruptions, but that ruling authority would never pass away permanently. So let me summarize this. When Jesus came to the earth, okay? When Jesus came to the earth, Israel was still waiting and longing for the promises of the Davidic covenant to be realized. 
And as a result, they were looking for a special descendant of David who God would rise up to rule over the nation of Israel and establish the glorious kingdom that the prophets had spoken of and greatly anticipated. And when I talk about the prophets, I'm referring to the Old Testament prophets. Again, sections of Scripture that many Christians ignore or refuse to even get into. And yet, it is those sections of Scripture that speak about and to this coming kingdom. Interesting. So, in part, beloved, it is, it is an understanding of this Davidic covenant and the promises that God made to David that makes the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary so significant. This text is read typically during Christmas time, okay? People know the text, but most miss how unbelievable the words are of what the angel said to Mary. So I'm going to read it for you. And now just thinking a little bit differently, thinking about this Davidic covenant, thinking about this man, David, thinking about the son of David. Now listen to this. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Just put that in the back of your mind. That means that Joseph is a descendant of David. That's the first thing. And the writer wanted you to know that. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, I bet she was, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. That's a phrase for Israel. The house of Jacob, because Jacob had the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Powerful. And as you begin to see what God has revealed in his word, you start to realize the 66 books are not 66 individual stories all telling something different. But they are all talking about the same thing. It's, it is unbelievable. It will floor you as you begin to dive in. So number three, this is the last question, what is the meaning and implication of Jesus being the son of David? What is the meaning and implication of Jesus being the son of David? Well, we've already said David was not his dad in the normal sense of the words, right? He was not his dad. Even Joseph was not his biological dad. We know that, right? Mary was a virgin. Jake, Joseph was his legal father. But David, how is David his dad? Well, we talked about it. He is a descendant of David. He's the son of God, but he is a descendant of David. Therefore, he is the son of David. That is what that phrase means through whom God will ultimately fulfill the Davidic covenant once and for all when Jesus returns as the king 
to establish and rule over the kingdom of God on this very earth. That is why the genealogies, that's what we call them, or the family tree that is recorded about Jesus and we find in Matthew and Luke are so important. They trace Jesus' mom and dad, legal dad, all the way back to being descendants of David. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 1, and by the way, you know you can just turn there. It's the first gospel. I'm not going to read the whole genealogy. I just want you to notice something. Here we have the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, the very first verse. And this is how Matthew starts. Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's the first thing that Matthew wants you to know. He is the son of David. And then he goes on to prove he is the son of David by tracing his lineage through David's son, Solomon. Okay, so if you go all the way back, Joseph was a descendant of David's son, Solomon. When you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23, in that genealogy, what you see here is Mary's link to Jesus. Her genealogy traces back to David through David's other son, Nathan. Nathan. And see, we read the genealogies and we think, oh my goodness, I can't pronounce most of these names. Why would they waste the time to even include this? You want to know why? They were looking for a descendant of David. They were waiting and longing and they were keeping track of whose daddy was whose because it was important looking for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. So Joseph, as Jesus' legal father, gave him the right to the legal reign of the kingship, to the rule. That gave him the legal authority on the father's side. Even though he wasn't his biological daddy, he was his legal father. And Mary establishes the bloodline because she was the very blood of David coming through the son, uh, David's son, Nathan, going all the way down to Mary. She had the blood of David running in her. And she is Jesus' mother. Wow. And now you start to see that Mary and Joseph were not just two random people that happened to get stuck with the Son of God. I mean, that's huge responsibility. you got to imagine, right? I say that jokingly, but that would be a huge responsibility. The Son of God is in your womb. Oh, my goodness, really? I mean, that was huge. This was significant. They were descendants of David. Now, we may not naturally think or talk about Jesus' connection with David. We, I, we don't. And part of it is because we don't have Jewish blood running through us and or... We're just not familiar with the Old Testament. And or we even ignore the New Testament passages that speak about this relationship to David. We don't know what to do with it. But the apostles were aware of it and made it known on a regular basis. Let me just give you a few. Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 3. Concerning his son, speaking of Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh. That's how he begins the book of Romans, which is the book 
That is the best description of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. He begins by letting you know this Jesus has descended from David. Why, Paul? What's the big deal? Oh, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. How about 2 Timothy 2, verse 8? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. That means a descendant of David, as preached in my gospel. That means that in his gospel even, he included the fact that Jesus was the son of David. Interesting. How about Peter? Apostle Peter, Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through 32. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Fascinating. Now, if you think it's just the apostles, how about Jesus himself? At the very end of the last book of the New Testament, Revelation, he says just a few things. And here's how Jesus identifies Himself, Revelation 22, verse 16. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Wow. I guess Jesus thought it was important too to be identified as the son of David. Beloved, in Matthew, when the people saw Jesus heal a blind man and mute man so that he spoke and saw the question that the people asked that was on their lips, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Here it is. Can this be the son of David? They, they were looking, they were longing, and what they were seeing was saying, this might be him. This very well might be him. Thinking back in our text today in Mark, remember that Jesus gave sight to a blind man, and that blind man called him the son of David. The writer of this book comments on that particular passage. Jesus had healed a blind man, one of the great miracles predicted by Isaiah, who is a prophet, who is in your Bible, in connection with the coming kingdom, Isaiah 35, verse 5. And it was done in response to the man's appeal to him, Jesus, as the royal son of David. Do you see that connection? Do you see what's going on? And when we get to Mark chapter 11, now you understand why the people are throwing down palm branches and hailing hallelujahs at the king who has just come into Jerusalem. Beloved, Jesus is the son of David. He is the chosen heir to the throne. He is the fulfillment in part of the promises that God made to David in what we refer to as the Davidic covenant. He is the righteous king of God's coming kingdom. Now, 
Let me close with this. So what? Well, here's a so what. How do we really think of Jesus? How do we really think of Him? Because the way in which we think of Him will directly impact how we live for Him. Or if we even live for Him at all. Friend. Is Jesus our friend? Yes, beloved. Yes, He's our friend. We sang about it. He's a friend like nobody's. No friend. Never let you down. Always there for you. Is Jesus our Savior? Oh, you better believe it. We sing about that. How about king? Is he our king? What does that mean if he is our king? See, we have a phrase that we use in business all the time. It goes like this. The customer is king. You ever heard that? Well, if you've never heard it, I'll tell you what it means. At minimum, it means this. That you, as a business, better work hard to serve the customer. And you better treat that customer like he is Mr. VIP or Mrs. VIP. You know what that means? I'm just checking. I don't want to take anything for granted. Very important person. Right? That's what it means, treating the customer as king. Beloved, as the son of David, Jesus Christ is the coming king. He is it. Meditate on that. You meditate on that and see if your attitude towards serving Him, obeying Him, and even surrendering your life for Him does not change. I believe it will change. I believe you can't help but think about Him as King. You know, I, He's our friend. He's our Savior. But some of the stuff I think we forget, He is King. He is the rightful heir to the throne. He's not just my homeboy. He is much more than that. He is much more than that. So the question is, do we really esteem and honor this son of David as we ought to? Do we? How many times, let me just ask you a few questions. How many times should a king have to ask his servants to do something? I wasn't expecting a response, but that was a good one. One time. You all know that. Piece of cake. That, of course, king, ask it. Boom, jump, do it, right? How many times does he have to ask? Does it seem reasonable to argue with a king? Who dare would do that? Who dare would argue with a human king? Listen. In times past, you argue with the king. You won't have your head to argue much longer. And that's a human king. How about this? When a king makes a request, what priority should we place on that request? Like 10th, 20th? We'll get around to it when we have time. Don't worry, I got you. Sometime later. Beloved, it is a sad commentary on humanity that in history, 
men and women have shown themselves to be more loyal, more faithful, more obedient to the kings of this world than they have to the king of kings, Jesus, the son of David. And I hope and pray that that would not be the case for us. Let's pray. Father God, we, we just barely even touched all the truths that are in the reality of Jesus being the son of David. Father, I pray that you would drive home that message further and deeper. Father, that your people would be encouraged to want to seek out all that that means and begin to embrace and understand Jesus as the rightful heir to the throne of the kingdom of God and all that that means for us and all that it should mean for us even now. Father, we are looking and longing for We sing about it on Sunday. We think about it throughout the week of the return of the King. Or Lord, we should be thinking about that. And so I pray that You would work through Your Spirit in Your people to drive home that reality. The Jesus that is coming is not that little baby born in a manger so innocent and weak in appearance. But it is the almighty, sovereign, powerful King of the universe and world. And when He comes again, He is all about His business. Father, help us live in light of that. Help us honor Him. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We are grateful for that friendship. We are grateful and happy to call Him Savior. But Lord, Father, may we also delight in calling Him King and living in that reality. We pray all these things, Father, that You would be lifted up and that Your people would respond to the truth of Your Word in obedience. In Jesus' name, Amen.